Amen. Well, it is good to be back here this morning. Um, sitting on my couch last Sunday morning and watching the live stream is nowhere near the joy of gathering with the body of Christ to look around and see people I love, to sing with them and to hear their voices, um, and then to watch you all take communion while I'm at home. I was reminded of that reality that God has made us to gather and to be together. He has made us a corporate body, and to miss it is to really miss something. And so I'm thankful to be back. If I begin hacking, just bear with me. Uh, I'll try to get the mic turned down, and you guys can just manage. I should be okay, though. I made it through the course seminar. I also just wanted to say, uh, before I get started in the text this morning, I just want to thank Justin uh, for filling in last minute. Thank you so much. Um, I was blessed. My soul was refreshed just hearing the word last Sunday and remembering the glories of our Savior, right? Amen. That the Savior is our propitiation. The Savior is our redemption. The Savior is our justification. And what a timely reminder when the world seems to fall apart that we can look to an all-sufficient Savior. Um, when I was sitting there weak on my couch, it was a message my soul was just relishing. I was thankful. Thank you. Privileged to be a part of a church where there are many who love the Word and many who can handle the Word and teach the Word and feed the flock. As you open up in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10, we're going to finish the section that we began two weeks ago, which is the story of the rich young ruler, the story of the rich young ruler. I want to begin, though, by telling a little story that might set us up to hear the text and understand it. When I was a youth pastor at, in Fallbrook, the little community of Fallbrook south of here, down the 15 freeway, you get off, you drive in a little bit, you hit the unincorporated community of Fallbrook, and we were at a little church, First Baptist Church of Fallbrook, and I was, the, uh, the, I was an associate pastor of music and youth. The youth group had a grand total of three students in the group, and so we wanted to reach out, and so we began a Bible study, a, a kind of Christian club on the local public school, high school campus. And so I would, every Wednesday, I'd run over to Little Caesars, I'd pick up those $5 pizzas, you know what I'm talking about, and I would bring those over to the school, the youth group definitely knows what I'm talking about, and we would, we would go to the, the high school, and one of the students in my youth group had reserved a classroom, and the teacher opened it up for us, and we would feed the kids their pizza, and then I would get up and try to give a gospel presentation uh, five, no more than ten minutes long. I just wanted to get the gospel, and I would try to come at it from different angles. I'd come at it from this angle and that angle, and every week just trying to present the gospel, and we'd always get several students that would come for the pizza, and they would listen out of obligation, and I never saw anyone repent, I never saw anyone get saved, although I had many conversations, and sometimes I will think of those people, I will pray, and who knows, maybe one of those Kids will get converted later in life. That's what we pray for. But I remember one particular conversation. 
As I was leaving the class, I had given the gospel, the lunch bell had rung, the students were on their way to class, and one of the boys was walking out with me, and I decided to walk with him on his way to class. And we were talking about the gospel, and he was an agnostic, is what he described himself as. He did not believe the Bible was true. He did not believe that anyone could know if there was a God. And we began discussing these things. And on our way to class, I remember one of the final things he said to me as he headed into the classroom, he said this. He said, well, you know, one of the problems I have with Christianity is that Christians always end up penniless. He actually said those words to me, penniless, stuck with me. I thought, that's interesting. One of the reasons you're rejecting Christianity is that you won't get rich following Jesus. That the Christians you know aren't wealthy. They aren't people of means. And so you, desiring to have a certain lifestyle that has wealth, are rejecting the gospel of your salvation because you're concerned that if you follow Jesus, you'll end up penniless like these Christians that you've known. He might end up poor. He had a desire for money. He had a desire for wealth. He had a desire for the comfort that those things can bring. And it controlled him to the degree that he was unwilling to consider the claims of Christ. Now that might be an extreme example, but I think it happens far more often than we think. And also I think that we are controlled by wealth far more frequently than we realize. Controlled by the desires for wealth. Even believers controlled and decisions are shaped by, lives are dictated by our desire to get wealth and the comforts that wealth affords. Are you controlled by your desires for wealth and what kind of lifestyle that it would afford for you? Does it dictate the way you live? Does your desire for wealth dictate your giving, your spending? Is your whole lifestyle shaped according to this wealthy picture that you have in your mind that you're striving for? That the career path you're on is shaped more by your desire for wealth than it is shaped by your desire for obedience or generosity or sacrificial love toward those who don't deserve it? Even college students, you begin choosing your major, you begin going down a path, you begin crafting your future. Why are you making the decisions you're making? Is the sole determinative factor of the decision life that's comfortable, that you have attained a certain measure of wealth that would allow you to live this lifestyle you dream of living? And the, to the degree that we are doing that, is the degree that we are like the rich young ruler who is willing to compromise his obedience to Jesus because of his desire to keep his wealth. You remember the tragic conversation. We're in Mark chapter 10. 
Look at verse 17 with me. Let's just call me good. No one is good except God alone. And in that short response, Jesus is crafting for him an understanding of who God is and who he requires of him. No one is good except God alone. Verse 19, you know the commandments, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Jesus brings up the moral requirements of the law so that he would see how he's fallen short, recognize his own sinfulness, his own need of a savior, he would repent, and he would come to seek grace from God. Rather, this man is so under an illusion that he is right with God and good before God that he says he actually has the audacity to say, verse 20, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I've, I've done it all. All the moral requirements of God, I've kept them. I've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and I'm good. What else do you need me to do? I want eternal life. I certainly have earned it. How do I get it? Verse 20 or verse 21 and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This is the look of love, the look of compassion. I think there's also a sadness in the eyes of Christ as he looks at this man and says to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And Come follow me. The, the wealth that you have is not going to be the thing that gets you into eternal life. It's not going to provide the security that you're longing for, the stability you seek. You need me. You need me. And if you want lasting treasures, you follow me. I'm not anti-treasure. I'm anti-treasure that rots. I'm anti-treasure that deceives. That stuff will go. The, the stuff you have is going to rot. But if you follow me, there's treasure in heaven. In verse 22, he was disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions controlled by his wealth. Unable to follow Jesus because of his wealth. And on the heels of this tragic conversation, it's almost as if the horizon is there and there's this guy's silhouette as he walks off and the disciples are there with Jesus. In verse 23, we get to our section now, as the silence is there and they're brooding over what they just saw, I think the disciples were amazed at this interchange. Let's read the next section now. And we're going to find here four lessons that Jesus now gives privately to his disciples. Four lessons from this interchange. Verse 23, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is a profound section of Scripture, and I think it would have been incredible for the disciples to hear what Jesus just said, especially considering some of these preconceived ideas they had about wealth, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I identify four different lessons that arise from this text that Jesus takes the opportunity of this interchange with the rich young ruler, and now in the privacy that he has with just his disciples, he begins to instruct them. He begins to offer them certain lessons they they need to understand about the kingdom and about wealth and about salvation and about what it takes to get in and to get eternal life. These are lessons that are just as relevant today as they were all those years ago. And we're going to start with the first one. The first lesson that Jesus brings up here is wealth is dangerous. Now, don't hear me say that wealth is sinful. And don't hear Jesus say that it's wrong to be wealthy. But I think we do need to hear what Jesus is saying, that he's highlighting a certain danger that comes along with having a lot of money. As the man disappears on the horizon line, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he makes a kind of declarative statement to them. Verse 23, he looks around to them. He's eyeing them. It's almost like he's getting the load on the looks of their faces. Their jaws are probably on the floor after what he just said to this young ruler. And now Jesus says to them in their shock, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's going to be hard for people who have wealth, it's going to be hard for people who have money to enter into God's eternal kingdom. Now, why is that? I mean, based on what we have just read about the guy, we know that he felt pretty good about himself. And one of the things that wealth is tempting us to do all the time is to find our security and to find our identity in the wealth that we have. See, wealth is able to do some things for us. Wealth is able to create a kind of heaven on earth. If you got enough money, you can create enough um, of a lifestyle on earth that can kind of numb your sense of longing for eternity. My daughter likes looking at houses on realtor.com. It's like one of her favorite hobbies. And just recently, she found one in Brooklyn, New York, a house that was selling for $55 million dollars. And the pictures are posted, and just this weekend, we're looking through them, this remarkable place. I don't know how many square feet was in that house. It had everything you could dream of, all these rooms. It looked glorious and magnificent. And I just think to myself, the person who buys that, 
Is it, is it possible that a person who lives there stops to long for heaven? And the person who maybe begins to feel an ache for something better than this life, isn't it more likely that people with wealth can kind of drown that ache away by indulging in the pleasures that their wealth can afford and the comforts their wealth can bring and the amusements they can attain and the pleasures they can purchase? In other words, wealth can be something that is almost substituting our desire for heaven. And this is one of the problems with us, honestly, if we're going to think about the, you know, all of us and the wealth that we have. We are wealthy, and we are wealthier than all the generations that have come before us. We are a wealthy people. And it's easy for us to use the, use the wealth we've attained to numb some of the longings that God intends for us to have. And we can accumulate the comforts in this life that we no longer think about accumulating the comforts in heaven. The other thing that wealth enables us to do, it can be like a numbing agent to counter the weight of guilt. You know, you start feeling bad about some sin that you've committed, and what do you do? You, you drown yourself in some amusement. You comfort yourself with some pleasure. You indulge yourself with some purchase. Wealthy people have the potential to distract themselves from eternal realities through means. But a poor person, maybe barely able to feed himself, barely able to get a house that has a roof, that is able to provide shelter, that person tends to be a little more heavenly-minded, thinking about the day that finally all their needs are met. In other words, I think Jesus is bringing up the difficulty of those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God because they just saw it in this guy who seemed to be using his wealth as a way to stabilize himself and as a way to act as if he had a security, as a way to bolster up his own self-righteousness. He thought that his wealth gave him a standing with God. I wonder also if wealth causes us to forget about the reality of impending death. I mean, you heard about what Walt Disney did trying to think of a medical way that would enable him to escape death, freezing his head, some have said. That some people rich in their, at the end of their lives have used their wealth to try to pay scientists to come up with some way that they would be able to live forever. Now, those are extreme examples, but isn't it true that all of us are trying to stave off death and sometimes we're doing it by accumulating comforts? I think the first lesson that Jesus is bringing up is that it is difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God because they are tempted to use their wealth to numb their guilt, to build heaven on earth. To, they use their wealth as a way to enable them to feel righteous. God must be approving of me because look at all the money I have. Are you trusting your wealth? Are you aware, even, of the dangers of accumulating money for the purpose of making your life comfortable? As the disciples, verse 24, it says the disciples were amazed at his words. I think they still believed that wealth was an indication of God's approval. That was what a lot of first century, first century Jews believed, that God must be approving of all the people who are wealthy. That's how he blessed them. He approves of their life. He's so obedient to the law. He's so good at keeping the commandments, and therefore God has made him wealthy. The disciples were probably thinking that way, and here is Jesus totally turning upside down their way of thinking, saying, no, it's actually difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. But he goes further. Look at this. But Jesus said to them, children, 
How difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? In other words, I want you to notice the difference between the first thing he said and now the second statement. They're amazed at his words when he says it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 24, he says children, he calls them children, a term of affection, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Noticeably absent is any reference to wealth in that statement. He's just talking about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God. And then he brings back the idea of wealth and entering God's kingdom in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been some funky ways of interpreting this, and I wonder if any of you have heard of them. I want to actually see a show of hands here. Have any of you heard the explanation Jerusalem that to get through? Uh, many of you, you had to get the camel had to, to sh- shed all its baggage, and it was you know had to crawl on its knees. And if you came to Jerusalem after the gates were shut, you had to go through this special gate called the Eye of the Needle. I heard that growing up. There's a couple problems with that understanding of this text. Number one. There's no evidence of that gate ever having existed. Um, It just simply has never been discovered. There's no evidence in Jerusalem that such a gate has ever been in existence. The story started appearing in the 15th century in sermons as an illustration. And then it got picked up and one preacher liked it so much, he used it in her sermon and got passed down. And then it got put into commentaries. And nowadays people are saying there's no evidence for such a gate. There's, There's no problem. The other problem with this interpretation is that it actually totally misses the point of the text. Because people who say, this is a, you know, to get into the kingdom of heaven, it's like a rich, it's like a camel that needs to go through this small gate. And to get in, all they have to do is just take off the baggage and then they can get in. It's really hard, but it's doable. Jesus isn't saying it's merely really hard. He's actually going to go further and he's going to say, this is impossible. The, The point of the camel a thousand-pound beast of burden, squeezing through a hole the size of a grain of sand, he's meaning to bring this up as a graphic image of the impossibility of it ever happening. The camel can't get in through the eye of the needle. He's not talking to a gate. The gate doesn't exist. He's talking about this is impossible for anybody to enter the kingdom of God. And you say, how do you know that? Well, look at what Jesus says next. They're all exceedingly astonished, verse 26. Their their astonishment is just heightening. And then he says, then who can be saved? That's their question. Well, who could possibly be saved? If you're saying it's impossible, if it's only the one who's the size of a camel getting through the eye of the needle, well, who can do it? They're picking up his drift, right? They're understanding that he's saying this is impossible. And then Jesus affirms what they were understanding by saying, verse 27, with man, it is impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible. This is an utter impossibility that people get into the kingdom of heaven, that people with wealth get into the kingdom of heaven. He's not merely saying salvation is difficult. He's going beyond that. He's saying salvation is impossible. And remember, he's not only talking to the wealthy, although he's using that as a bridge to talk about salvation in general, because back in 24, he spoke generally of the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God altogether. 
He is pointing to what I think is the second lesson here is not only that wealth can be dangerous in that it prevents you from understanding your great need of salvation, but secondly, that salvation is impossible for man. That's the second point here. It is an impossibility. With man, it is impossible. You say, what's the it? What's the, what's the it referring back to? It's referring back to getting into the kingdom of God. That's what it's referring back to. In other words, it is impossible for a mere mortal to get into the kingdom of God apart from him. With man, in other words, with man's means, with man's efforts, with man's achievements, with man's attainments, it is impossible that anybody do enough, earn enough, merit enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. It is an utter impossibility. It's not merely difficult. It's not somewhat hard. It is impossible. Those are the words of Jesus. With man, getting into heaven, getting into the kingdom is impossible. And that's why they are exceedingly astonished and they ask him, who then can be saved? The graphic image of the camel squeezing through the speck door is something that's meant to shock us a little bit. What's the likelihood of that beast getting through there? I mean, he might nuzzle up against the thing. Is he making any progress? He, he's not getting anywhere. The camel's not getting anywhere. And we got to get this. There's so much difficulty that is added to the life of the Christian who still begins to believe that they have to do something to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, no one here, I trust, will articulate with your words that you think you need to earn heaven. You won't say that out loud. You know better. You've been taught. You know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You know all these things. You've been taught these things, and yet... Deep down in the crevices and corners and dark rooms of our heart, there is still this impulse that God will approve of me if I perform well. If I do well, he'll love me more. And my salvation is resting upon my ability to perform I know theologically, yeah, I'm getting into heaven by the sheer grace of God alone, but practically as I live my life, I feel very good about my relationship with God when I'm performing well, and I feel very bad about my relationship with God when I'm performing poorly. In other words, I might think that I'm justified by faith alone, but I start living as if I'm loved by God based on my performance. And so I'm up and I'm down and I'm up and I'm down. And all of this is tracing back to this false belief that, our, that God's love for us is contingent upon our performance. We think, as we referred to a couple weeks ago, that God himself is transactional. That God's love is earned. That God's love doesn't flow freely, but it must be given something. We must feed him something that will enable him to love us. And so we spend our lives trying to earn the love of God. And I can do better. Oh, man, I've failed. He must be really mad at me now. He must be willing to turn away from me now. We are thinking that salvation is part man, part God. And we might even think that it's mostly God, but we still have this hidden feeling, unarticulated, that it's really up to me. I think part of the remedy to this is to actually go back to Scripture and understand how sinful we are. 
Surprisingly, I think this actually helps because once you get to the understanding that you can do nothing, that what Jesus is saying is actually true, that it's impossible for you to gain any standing with God, it tends to help us to stop and actually rest in the gospel. Not that we stop seeking good works. No, not at all. But we stop trying to earn God's approval by our own efforts. I want to point out five words that help describe man's sinful condition before God. Because if we get this, it'll help us understand what Jesus is getting at here. Number one, dead. Number two, deceived. Or we're going to go with darkened. Number two. Number three, deceived. Number four, unwilling. Number five, unable. We'll review those, starting with dead. The Bible says that in sin, in Adam, before Christ, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead, spiritually senseless, we cannot... No God, we cannot intuit our way to God, we cannot grasp the things of God, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Bible goes further than that, it says we're darkened in our understanding. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we have hard hearts because of our hard hearts, we are ignorant. And the metaphor that is used here is that our minds are darkened. You ever been in a, a cave or something where it is truly pitch black? I'm not talking about a night where the moon's out and the stars are shining. I'm talking about where there's no light whatsoever. You put your hand up against your eyes and you can't even see it. This is the condition of fallen man. We are dead in our sins, but we're also darkened in our understanding. We cannot see the glories of the gospel. We cannot appreciate the work of Christ. We cannot understand it. Why? Because our minds are darkened. We're also, thirdly, deceived. Because we're dead, because our minds are darkened, we are deceived. We're born into a web of lies. We're under the influence of the father of lies, the enemy himself, Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God, lowercase g, referring to Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. We are dead in our sins. We are darkened in our minds. We are deceived in our understanding. And fourthly, we are unwilling. We are unwilling, therefore, because we can't see it and because we can't apprehend it, because we can't understand the glories of it, we have no desire to come to Christ. We don't want to. Well, why would we if life is okay as we are? If we can't see our sin, if we can't see the salvation God offers, if we can't understand forgiveness, then we're unwilling to. The Bible teaches very clearly that we're unwilling, we're hostile to God. And then number five, the fifth word that describes our fallen condition is the culmination of all these things. We are unable to come to God. We cannot come to God. We cannot please God. We cannot feel our way to him, intuit our way to him, make our way to him, Dead, darkened, deceived, unwilling, unable. Do you think that a person in this condition can just save himself? Can just choose to enter the kingdom? Can a blind person just choose to see? Can a dead person just choose to get up and get out of that grave? He's saying with man, it's impossible. 
You see that? He's literally saying there is no possibility that a human being, apart from the sovereign grace of God, could get into the kingdom of God. With man, it is impossible. But let's look at the next thing Jesus says, because that's not all he says, but not with God. See that? Look in the text. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Here's the third lesson that Jesus now brings us to is that God alone can save. So we started with the dangers of wealth. We moved to the impossibility of salvation for man. And then now we're here saying that God, in his omnipotence, in his power, he can save. He is able to save. Nothing is impossible for God, not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, this is generally true in reference to God's omnipotence. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. The, the word almighty is used to describe God and God alone. No one and nothing else in the Bible is referred to as almighty. And all throughout the scriptures, God is presenting himself as an omnipotent, almighty God. Nothing is too hard for him. It's not like there are some things that are, you know, level too hard, and some things are level four difficulty, and some things are level 10 difficulty. And that really takes extra work for God to do those things. No, nothing is hard. Nothing is hard. In other words, everything is infinitely easy for an omnipotent God. There's nothing that's difficult for him. And in particular, the context that Jesus is saying this is that salvation and providing a full salvation for people, allowing them to enter into the kingdom of God is not hard for God. It is possible for God. There is nothing that can stop God from accomplishing salvation. All throughout the Bible, God's been demonstrating this. And then Jesus comes and he lives a life that is demonstrating the infinite power of God as he heals the sick, as he speaks with authority, as he calls disciples to himself, as he commands the weather and the weather obeys him. He even calls people to rise from the dead and they do. And then he himself conquers death, demonstrating again the omnipotence of God. He ascends into heaven where he rules at the right hand of the Father in all of church history since the resurrection is demonstration after demonstration after demonstration of God's omnipotent power to bring the dead to life as he saves people through his gospel. And if you're here this morning and you're a redeemed sinner, guess what? You are evidence and proof of the omnipotence of God that he could take a dead sinner like you and grant you life. I mean, think of it. Could anything else overcome those five words that we described earlier? Nothing else could. And yet we see in Scripture that all of those things are overcome by God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that we were made alive in Christ, given spiritual life. It says that we were darkened in our understanding. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is sent by Christ to bring illumination to our minds so that we might know God and understand His Word. We were deceived and God set us free from deception by giving us his truth. We were unwilling. And God gave us a new will, a new heart to give us the ability to follow him and the desire to do that. And then he empowers us, overcoming our own inability. He empowers us by the Spirit to now walk in obedience. In other words, salvation is all of God, not of man at all. Nothing that we contribute to God's 
Salvation adds to it. This is the only thing. You ready? The only thing we contribute to salvation are the sins that make it necessary. All of everything else is God acting in sovereign grace to redeem us. He's saying it. With man, it is impossible. It's not even remotely possible. It's not partially possible, half possible, for man to do some of it. There is no possibility that you could be saved. Salvation, therefore, must be all of God. All of God. You say, well, how could this be? I thought I had something to do with it. Well, didn't I choose God? Well, sure, but you only chose him because he chose you first. Ephesians 1.5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The verse before that, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before we even were born, he chose to love us, to set his love upon us and adopt us into his family. You say, well, what about faith? Faith is my doing. Sure, but it's a gift from God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says all of our Faith is a gift of God's grace. Philippians 1.29 says that the very fact that we believe has been granted to us from God, that is, it is a gift to even believe. To cap it off, John chapter 6, verse 45, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. If that didn't make it crystal clear. I mean, no one can come to God unless it's granted to him by the Father. Jesus said that. That's what he's getting at when he's saying that with man it is impossible. You contribute nothing to salvation except the sins that make it necessary. You say, man, well, what was my role in this? I think there might be some of you here that are not yet saved. And yet God may intend to save you. And if you think of God's sovereign grace from that perspective, it might be that you don't even believe God now. It might be that you think the tall, skinny preacher up front's a little odd, a little awkward. And this Jesus you're reading about in the scriptures are, I don't know much about him. And that gospel I've heard things about, I'm not sure about. Or you might even be here this morning thinking, I don't even know if God wants to save me. I'm a sinner. I'm a horrible person. I think of all the things I've done. God can save other people, but he can't save me. I mean, look at all the issues, all the baggage, all the filth in my life. But it may dawn on you that God is real. He is holy. And he's your creator. And that he loves you. And that he can save you. And that he has provided the full means for you to be saved. And that he sent his son as an act of pursuing love to live a perfect life that you couldn't live. And then to lay it down, to die on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay for the sins you committed. And that he rose from the dead and he's alive right now. And you right now be going, ah, I'm not sure that that's true. And there will be a, something just, just like a pebble in your shoe just nagging at you, realizing, man, maybe, maybe this is all for real. And you'll come to realize that this Jesus is living, 
that he is alive and that the lives of believers around the world are testifying to the fact that he is alive and he's still saving. And you'll come to realize that it's all true, that the things that the Bible say are actually true, that he did actually die on that cross. And you'll understand that when he died on that cross, that was payment for my sin. And he not only is a God who exists in perfect holiness, but he's a God of mercy. And out of the overflow of his mercy, he has made a way for you. And he actually wants you. And he's inviting you. And he's calling you, come to me. I, come, I have come for you. Come to me. And you'll see that in that resurrection, it was proof that he is who he said he is. That he is truly the Son of God and that you can trust him. And all the doubts and all the fears that maybe God would never want to save you will be settled by looking at that cross and saying, he loved me. He loved me to die for me. And you'll know that he lives right now and you'll trust in him and you'll say, I am secure eternally because of Jesus Christ. You see, the sovereign grace of God is the only way that any sinner could ever be saved. Because with man, it's utterly impossible. And if you are saved, you ought to give praise to God in abject humility because you contributed nothing. Praise be to the God who saves, amen? With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. It is possible that he save even you. Now, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. I think it's a little hard to understand what Peter's getting at in this. He, he's still, apparently, still reflecting on the rich young ruler and what happened there, and he's a guy that didn't give up everything to follow Jesus, and Jesus, or Peter sees that, that they have, they, they did leave everything, they actually left their jobs, and they are following Jesus, and so Peter brings that up, we've left everything, and, and we've followed you. And then Jesus replies, verse 29, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. See, Peter brings up this question that's kind of there in his own heart. We, we, we left everything. Are we going to be Okay. We're following you. What's going to happen to us? This guy was trusting in his wealth, but if we trust you, are you going to take care of us? I think that's what's going on. Jesus starts his response by saying, truly I say to you, which is a way of saying, hey, listen up, guys. I'm about to tell you something really important. And then he says something that I think a lot of us gloss over and don't kind of understand. I wonder what you thought when you, you read this text. How does this apply to us? Look what he says. No one who has left house, there's, we're going to uh, break these up into categories. This is uh, in the category of material possessions or property. House or brothers, and then he gets into another category. This is family and loved ones. If you've left house 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. So lands goes back with houses, property, material, possessions. If you've left those things, Jesus is saying, for my sake, for the gospel, note that, not just talking about anyone who leaves for any reason, talking about the kind of person who understands that this life isn't all there is, Eternity is on the horizon, and he wants to follow Christ, and so he gives up all to follow Jesus, to spread his gospel. He's doing this for the sake of Christ. He's describing that person. And then he makes this promise. Look at this. Who will not receive a hundredfold. You leave your lands, you leave your houses, you leave your family. You will receive a hundred times what you left, now in this time, isn't that interesting? In this time, in this life, in this age, you'll receive it in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's just look at the three things that Jesus promises here. Number one, he promises to everyone who follows him, first, a hundredfold blessings in this life. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, many of us are going to be suddenly surrounded. Uh, what does he mean? I think the key is to go back to Mark 3. Just turn there real quick with me, just a few pages to your left, where Jesus' mother and brothers are, are kind of crowding in. They want to talk to Jesus. The crowd in verse 32, chapter 3, verse 32, the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He is redefining the nature of family. And he is saying that there's a deeper kind of family, a spiritual family, that they are bound together by obedience to God, by the Spirit, as we live in obedience to the will of God. That is the family that Jesus is describing. And now he's saying, if you go back to chapter 10, that if you leave family, you will actually gain family a hundredfold. And what I think Jesus is getting at is if you leave those to follow, uh, those you love and the comforts of home to go follow Jesus for his sake, what I think Jesus is saying is you will be surrounded by new spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, spiritual brothers, spiritual sisters, spiritual children, you will get all that belongs to the body of Christ corporate counted as yours because you are part of the family. That's, I think, what he's getting at. He is saying that it's an allusion to the fact that Christian communities, and this is historically true and it ought to be true here, have not been so greedy and possessive about their wealth that they hoard it. Rather, they understand that their lands and their houses and their material wealth are gifts from God. And that Christians ought to use those things, not for themselves, but for the cause of Christ. And so there's a real sense that in the Christian community, if you have a house, it's kind of like it's all of ours. Like you need a bed to sleep at night, 
we'll figure it out. Someone here will have a bed to sleep on for you. You need something, someone's going to come in to meet your need. This is not kind of this communistic society where no one owns any possessions. It's this radical generosity that God implants into the hearts of his people. That says, this is not mine anymore. You need something of mine? Oh, God gave it to me. I'm only a steward. I'll give it to you if you're the one who has the need. And so you gain a house. You gain land. You gain wealth. You gain family when you follow Christ. In other words, God is going to use his church to meet every need. And I think here's our fourth lesson, is that sacrificing for Christ is worth it. Because what you will gain in the body of Christ will outweigh what you gave up. Uh, this is just so important for us. And I think uh, the Lord, you know, allowed me to get sick this last week to give me a living, breathing illustration of this reality. I mean, I felt like I had lots of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters that were caring for me as I sat in my bed. Uh, there were several people who called and texted to check in and say they're praying for me. There were people who dropped off meals for us. There were more than we could even fit in our fridge. I mean, we were well taken care of and well loved. Uh, a few years ago, just another illustration of this amazing reality that when we follow Christ, we're put into this community where we treat our possessions and our wealth as belonging to any who has need. Ashley got in a car accident. Praise the Lord, she was safe and there was no serious injury, but our car was damaged, uh, totaled, and we weren't quite sure what we were going to do. We had just bought the car. We start praying. I brought it up to the church just asking for prayer. Within a week, one church member offered to give us his car, just give it to us, not, not, asking for, not even saying, here, take this, lend it, and give it back when you're done, just offering it to give it to us. And then several others offering to help pay for the repairs and the damage, upwards of thousands of dollars given by people just saying, hey, if the need is with you, I'm willing to help. I'm willing to give. And I think Ashley and I came out of that experience with increased faith that our Father loves us and takes care of us. And a reminder, a stark reminder that often the way he does that is through the church family. And sometimes we don't like to be needy. We don't like to be the ones with the needs. And yet what he's saying here is that if you are following Christ, you've given up the pursuit of wealth for his sake. God puts you in a family where all that he has given to this church family is really all of us kind of together using it for his glory. And that's why in Acts chapter 4, when it's describing the early church, it says that there was not a single needy person among them. Why? Because when needs arose, they sold their possessions and they gave their wealth to the poor. They made sure everyone had what they needed. And by the grace of God, according to his provision, our desire is that at Grace Rancho, there's not a needy member among us because all of us in radical generosity are willing to step in and help where there's need, that we care for each other. And thus, we get to experience the blessing that Jesus talked about here, that when you leave it all to follow Jesus, he makes up for every sacrifice he provides for every need, and he often does it through the brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children of the new family he's put us in. So he promises hundredfold blessings in this life. He also promises persecutions, just to be real. 
Jesus doesn't whitewash the difficulty of following Jesus. There will be persecutions. But thirdly, and in the age to come, eternal life. He promises to give what the rich young ruler came seeking and walked away not having. He says, you lose it all for my sake. You give it all for my sake. You end up getting it. You get the eternal life you longed for. And then as we kind of close here, let me ask you this then. Based on all these things, the promise of Jesus to provide, the danger of wealth, all these things, is it possible that we make sacrifices for the kingdom of God? Think about it. At first you might say, yes, of course, it's possible to make sacrifices. But zoom out a billion years from now. And think of every sacrifice that you make. Every time you're radically generous. Every time you offer something that kind of hurts your checkbook a little bit. Every time you give something away that might have been used for yourself, but someone else had the need and you do it. Is it possible to sacrifice? From an earthly perspective, you say, sure, to give up something. But maybe, according to what Jesus is saying here, a more accurate way of thinking of it is investment. He's saying when we give things away and follow him, we are paid back a hundredfold. In other words, it's worth it. It's investment. There's treasures in heaven. In all the times we're being stingy and holding on to things ourselves, we're actually hindering ourselves from enjoying the fullness of the blessing that God gives us as we see how he provides for us. Every sacrifice is paid back in full and some. If that's true, why are we often so stingy rather than radically generous? Why do we hold back when it's all going to be paid for in the end? Jesus will see to it that every sacrifice is paid back a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. Verse 31 turns everything upside down, and we'll end with this. But many who are the first will be last, and the last first. First in this life, try to keep things for yourself in this life, attain comforts in this life. Those are the people who end up being last. But the people who are last in this life, considering others more than their own needs, radically generous, laying their lives down for Jesus and for others, they will never get the attention of the world. They do have the attention of God, and they will be first in his kingdom. How are you using your wealth? You have it. Is wealth controlling you, or are you willing to forsake its alluring power, follow Jesus entirely, entrusting him to meet your every need? How does God want you to use your wealth. My friend who I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon might have been right in the fact that Christians don't always end up rich. And sometimes they end up penniless. But what he did not realize is that they are actually rich beyond his wildest dreams both in this life 
in the wealth that the world cannot quite understand, the wealth of family and loved one and communities, but also rich in the age to come. Let's pray. So Lord, free us from the love of money. Thank you, Lord, for the money you've given us, the wealth that has been provided to us. We do see it as a blessing. But we recognize that wealth makes promises it cannot keep. It cannot satisfy us. It cannot create stability and security. Only you can do that. So, Lord, I pray that we would take to heart the lessons that Jesus has given us here, that we would see the dangers of wealth, the utter impossibility of attaining salvation, the absolute confidence that God has provided our salvation and will see to it that we are safe in his care and that it will be worth it to entrust everything to him and follow him in obedience. Free us from dangerous love of wealth. For your glory, in Jesus' name.